Hang on, hang on. You can't even keep a consistent position during a debate. Chris, let me finish. Still no answer. It's not going to make great TV if we're talking over the top of each other. Yeah, let him answer. Calm down. Wrong. It made epic tally. Taking a defibrillator to the campaign, News Hub's leaders debate delivered on crimes. Are they going to go and rip the patches off them or not? Uh, I'm telling you, they're going to make sure they're not wearing gang patches. And they make sure... I mean, Chris Hipkins. They're going to make sure... On health. Yeah, I'd like to do that. Okay, so the bowel cancer screening. Do you want to bring it down as well, Chris Hipkins? Yes, absolutely, I do. And so, so, so much more. Have either of you done MDMA? (laughs) Chris Hipkins. No. No. Are you sure? What about now? Actually, I mean, I feel like I should give him a hug or something. Too good. Labour sources have told us the party pulled in a bunch of donations off the back of the debate, buying them a bit more momentum. Can Hipkins keep it rolling? And the debate wasn't the only show in town. He's back, baby. Big time. His kingmaker crown is sitting atop his head once more. So, Jenna, when he's back. Winston Peters is back. Not one, but two TV polls have National and ACT needing Peters for power. Winston Peters can expect a call. So they'll need the eight seats from Winston Peters to hold power. (laughs) Kia ora, I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to the pod. It is jam-packed this week. A lot to explore with Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass from the week that was and the week to come. We're talking coalitions, chaos and conspiratorial candidates with ACT's David Seymour and New Zealand First's Shane Jones. How can they work together? We also talked to the New Zealand First candidate that Chris Hipkins quoted in the News Hub debate. This is a quote from last week. And it's from a New Zealand First candidate speaking in a Meet the Candidates meeting. I get a bit angry about this because this is a direct quote. And he's talking about Māori. He said, cry if you want to, we don't care. You pushed it too far. We are the party with the cultural mandate and the courage to cut out your disease and bury you permanently. Christopher, you're willing to work with these people. Why? Well, I'll tell you why, because I'll tell you what's going to happen. Is I, don't want to work with the, well, I don't want to work with New Zealand first, but I am going to make the call if it means that I stop you to party more and coming to power in three years. Do you think that's racist? I do. I don't think that's acceptable So why at all. are you willing I to have sitting around the cabinet table? Rob Ballantyne's defending his comment, saying he was taken out of context. Plus, we have some exclusive survey results on tax. Should big business pay more? And what about a capital gains tax? One thing we do not have on the pod, however, is an interview with Christopher Luxon. Once again, the national leader has refused to sit down with us. That's three dates we've given him now. Three big fat no's. Have you got ten minutes to sit down with us next week? Will you sit down with us for ten minutes next week? Sorry? Will you sit down with us for ten minutes next week? Thanks. Well, we we have, often, and got this statement back from his press team. Quote, we've received a huge number of interview requests for Christopher Luxon and unfortunately we cannot accept all of them. Well, at least we're in good company. Christopher Luxon is also refusing to do interviews with Mihingarangi Forbes for Mata and Moana Maniapoto on Te Ao. But come on, Luxon! Everyone else is speaking to us. We've all talked to Chris Hipkins already. Let us give you balance. Come speak to our audiences. They're voters too. They have a right to hear from you. What's your problem? Don't be so luxadaisical. You just heard Chris Hipkins there quoting New Zealand First candidate Rob Ballantyne during the News Hub Leaders debate. Here's Rob actually saying it at a Meet the Candidates event in Timaru. Cry if you want to, we don't care, you've pushed it too far. And we're the party with the cultural mandate 
and the courage to cut out your disease and bury you permanently. And here's a corridor I had with Rob about his comments. Do you recognise that your comments, and both Chris Hipkins and Chris Luxon said this last night, they're racist? If you take them out of context like they were, Tova, then yes, uh, I do recognise that. But if you put it into context, the way that it was said at the meeting, then no, it certainly was not racist. In fact, it was completely the opposite. I will stand up for mainstream Māori, who I think, for the most part, are happy to get on with their lives and do a a pretty good job of it. They're good, decent people. And uh, I'll stand up for them every day uh, that I'm doing this job. But but you're talking about co-governance as a concept and you're saying cut out the disease, bury it permanently. And even if you're singling out what you describe as an elite group of Māori, you're still attacking Māori in this quote. The quote is still racist. I Look, the disease, as far as I'm concerned, is, is a concept. Is their thinking along... Of partnership, the concept of partnership. No, it's not partnership because that's not... That is not their intention. They don't want partnership. They want self-governance. They want to have their own education system, their own health system, their own justice system. We, we, we know this. You know, we, we, can, we can play around. <laughs> you keep saying, Rob, like they, 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 like they're this cabal of powerful mafiosos in the government. Um, well, look, give them enough rope and who knows what could happen. If you want to hear the full interview with Rob Ballantyne, keep an eye on the podcast feed. We'll put it out alongside his whole speech to the North Timaru Rotary so you can determine whether you think he was taken out of context or if his comments are racist. No prizes for guessing what I think. Act Party Leader David Seymour joins me now. Tenakwe. Tenakwe. Can, can I play this clip, David, from Chris Hipkins this week detailing your history of Biffo with Winston Peters? Uh, David Seymour has described Winston Peters as the least trustworthy person in New Zealand politics and has said we're not going to be sitting around the cabinet table with this clown. He then said that he wouldn't fight Winston Peters because it would be elder abuse. Winston Peters retorted that David Seymour reminds me of a chihuahua at the front gate barking at every cat, human being or fellow dog that passes by. That is all true, isn't it, David? Uh, I think uh, we may have actually found something we have in common, which is a sense of humour, which uh, sadly has escaped uh, uh, poor old Trippy, but I could imagine why he'd be a bit down at the moment. Do you still believe Winston Peters is the least trustworthy person in New Zealand politics? Well, look, unfortunately, you know, this is a person who has had a lot of choices and a lot of chances uh, to fix the exact things he now rails against. Um, And, you know, to say I I deserve another chance despite all the other times, uh, I don't think is credible. So you still believe Winston Peters is the least trustworthy person in New Zealand politics? Well, I think if you look at the the track record, unfortunately the results speak for themselves, uh, and that is a major challenge uh, for anybody who's thinking about where to put their party vote. I would argue that if you want a stable and united government, you've got two parties, active and national, that are quite clear their strong preferences to work with each other. Um, there's other options. 
Um, but those are going to be more challenging, as I think the Nats uh, have also expressed. So, so is that a yes? <laughs> you still believe Winston Peters is the least trustworthy person in New Zealand politics? Just a yes or no? Yeah, so I think I've I think I've given you a pretty clear answer already. Um, the track record speaks for itself. So that's a yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I mean, I, yeah, I, I want me to be that, that's all yeah. I needed. That's all I want. I mean, we yeah. could sit on my question one forever. Um, do you still think he's a clown? Um, well, he, he seems to enjoy acting the goat, so I'm sure he wouldn't mind that. And he called you a dog. <laughs> a chihuahua, no less. Well, you know, I guess that's a, another example of anti-Chinese rhetoric, which is another thing that I, I don't really like about the style of politics he brings to New Zealand. So, and, and there's another point as well. As I just, How then does it work if you two have to somehow work together in government? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, we could spend a lot of time on that hypothetical, but it requires quite a few things. I would to like happen. to spend a bit of time on that hypothetical because I think it's a really important hypothetical because it's a hypothetical that has a very high chance of becoming a reality. Well, I'm not sure that it does, to be quite honest. Um, but nevertheless, seeing as you want to ask, um, look, clearly it's going to be uh, extremely challenging if it comes to pass. But I think the option for the voter is to recognise that and say, look, this country's got some serious challenges it needs to overcome, and it will be all the easier to do that uh, if we don't have uh, you know, anything other than uh, an act national, strong and united coalition where both parties are saying their strong preferences to work with each other. Are you still open to that confidence, no supply arrangement? Uh, it's always been one of the mathematically possible options. Um, but as I've also consistently said, and, and the Nets are now mirroring the language, um, both parties' strong preference is a tight working relationship because we recognise uh, the level of challenge that New Zealand uh, faces. Uh, but it's also, I think, s surprised some people that ACT is a, a party that can't be bought off with baubles. I gave up being a minister to get end-of-life choice done. I think that was the right thing to do. Uh, and you won't see ACT MPs taking the baubles of office, being ministers, getting the limo and the title and the salary, uh, if they're not delivering the real change that New Zealand needs, making sure we deal with government waste, get better quality out of our public services, better quality regulation, and better ways of funding infrastructure for a start. I think this is a convenient ploy so that David Seymour didn't have to answer the question. <laughs> Are you uh, back you with us? You froze, you froze for a while. I, I, I certainly didn't intend to myself. I, I was answering like a trooper. That was one of the best answers, actually. We should point out to our listeners as well that you're on the road. Whereabouts are you in New Zealand? I'm in Tikawiti at the Waiete Rugby Club, the home of uh, the mighty Colin Meads. All right, so if everyone just bears with us a bit if we do get a bit choppy with the, the reception. So the thing is, if National needs Peters, if, if Christopher Luxon is over a barrel, he has to give him cabinet spots, even the Deputy Prime Minister role again. That's when you'd potentially trigger that arrangement, the confidence, no supply? No, I mean, that, that scenario has always been based around policy. And I think possibly the thing that that you're missing here is that ACT has always been focused on how do we get better policies for people rather uh, than positions for politicians and I know a lot of people would like to say that I'm the one who's actually turned down a position to get a better policy uh, and that will continue so to be that. our way of working. If it is about policies over perks as you've said how do you affect those policies without having those ministerial roles would you in that negotiating period after the election, would you agree to give confidence and supply for three years to a national New Zealand First government in exchange for an assured ACT policy agenda? 
Well, again, it's it, it's so hypothetical, Tova. I mean, nobody's even it's, started it's voting. It's really even. not. It's only a few weeks away from potentially becoming a reality on the latest Potent- News Hunter Read research poll. Potentially. So, to the extent that to the extent that we can be, you know, speculative, um, you know, our principles are clear. If, if you give your party vote to act, uh, you're voting for the policies of ending the waste getting consequences for crime, ending division by race, and starting to focus on productivity so we can pay for an ageing population so that we can deal with changing geopolitics and all the challenges this country faces. So you could potentially go into that negotiating period after the election, agree to give confidence and supply for three years and get those policy concessions that you're you're talking about. Is that is that how you're kind of potentially seeing that arrangement playing out? Um, Tova, just you said agree to and get those poll, and then I think you said policy, but it, it froze. Well, I'm just trying to work out. So another option is that you could give confidence for starters. So Luxon could go to the Governor-General, form a government, become the Prime Minister, and then you negotiate perhaps that supply bit in the lead-up to next year's budget, which would buy you a bit more time, give you a bit more um, time to negotiate some of those policy concessions that you're after. Um, well, no, I, I don't think we need time to negotiate. Um, you know, so you do Act it straight has, after the election. ACT has a very developed policy plan where the only party that has a fully A lot of which the National Party has nixed, When it comes David. to resource management law, uh, you name it, uh, education, welfare, you'll, you'll see ACT putting out detailed policy. So it, it's not a question of, of needing more time. OK, can you at least rule out the fact that is there any chance that you'd go into a piece-by-piece arrangement, a kind of bar- bargaining process every time National wanted to pass a money bill through the House, you'd have to be happy with it, you'd give it a yes or a no all the way through that three-year term, and if not, that would be the end of the government. Is there any chance you'd do that? I'm sorry, Tova, is is there a chance that we'd go into a piece-by-piece arrangement? Yeah, so every time National wanted to pass a money bill, you would have to give them the green light, and if not, the government would, would fall over. Well, in, in a sense, any arrangement uh, is like that because you need to get 61 votes. But I think a scenario like that is your last, last, last uh, resort. Uh, what we want is Act and National together on the 15th of October putting together an agreement to hold hands around the table and help New Zealanders come overcome the considerable challenges that the country faces around fixing the economy, making the streets safe and uniting New Zealand again. A last, last, last resort is still an option though, isn't it? And that's seriously risky brinkmanship because if National called your bluff, you would then bring down or risk bringing down a centre-right government. Would you, would you honestly consider doing that? Uh, well, no, I mean, it would have to be a very serious situation for, for both parties to consider it. Um, but you You're know, still op- keeping it a, like an, an open prospect. Even the prospect of that makes you sound chaotic and actually dangerous, the potential to bring down a government. Well, if you, but if you think about it, um, there's always the prospect um, that, I mean, I seem to be getting penalised for, for spelling out the basic constitutional rules of New Zealand. I mean, you know that that could theoretically happen right now. Uh, you know, Labour MPs decided that they weren't getting anywhere uh, and it was time to, to bring down their own government. Well, ma- maybe they should have done that six months ago. They might be in a better position instead of making all these policy mistakes. Uh, it's happened with past governments in New Zealand uh, in the past. Uh, you know, I mean, this is a, this is, you know, we're, we're really just getting it's down a, to It's a, it's a different tech. thing if you've got a, if you've got a minority government with a party offering case by case, piece by piece support on budget. Votes. 
See, I, I would argue that, that every party is doing that anyway. Um, but what's important for ACT is that our first preference, change the government, strong preference, tight working relationship with the Nats, and then you say, okay, well, what are the other theoretical, mathematical possibilities? Um, well, they're the same ones that every government faces. National's already kiboshed a whole bunch of your policies. You want to abolish the Zero Carbon Act, scrap our emissions reduction target of 50% by 2030. Luxon has said, no way, not on my nelly. So people shouldn't vote for you in the hope that you'll do that, right? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think people should recognise that uh, the relationship between two parties, I would hazard, is a bit like a marriage. Uh, you need to both keep your own identity and purpose while also making the whole relationship work. And that can involve compromise, in fact, has to involve compromise uh, on both sides. Um, so I wouldn't be, you know, weary. I'd be weary of someone saying this is a bottom line. I'd be wary of someone saying I rule this out. The reality is that the relationship has to work and the ultimate determinant is what's good policy. Well, I don't think that New Zealand... So, so everything Luxon said no to, you think the door is still open to. So partial sales of state-owned enterprises, abolishing fees-free tertiary, nixing film subsidies, R&D grants, first-home grants, all things that Luxon said, nah, not interested in, you think he might capitulate? Yeah, because there'll be a more powerful force, uh, which is called accounting. I think New Zealand has some real serious problems with government waste and with the economy. And I suspect that the plans that X put forward uh, are more realistic, given the very strained circumstances after six of Grant Robertson's budgets have left the cupboard bare. Do you ever worry, David, that some of your policies or rhetoric might fuel resentment towards Māori? No, uh, because, and I challenge you to give me an example of policies or rhetoric that would do that. Uh, and I'll, the next thing I'll tell you is that there's many Māori, including me and several of ex-MPs and candidates, who actually agree with ex policies. So the idea that Māori all think the same and are on one side of this debate is, is patently untrue. And to suggest that they are, now that is divisive and inflammatory rhetoric. Yeah, and, and well, yeah. I mean, perhaps if politicians didn't make such a meal out of helping our most vulnerable and those who are overly represented in all the wrong statistics, maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal. Maybe it wouldn't be driving so much resentment. I think if you look at X track record, uh, we've worked hard, even when we've had very little political capital, uh, we've worked hard to help those that are disadvantaged charter schools being the most obvious example in recent years. Uh, however, I just make the point that that was an example of how you help all people who are disadvantaged, including Maori, including Pacific, including people who are disadvantaged and don't actually go to a school that has any kind of ethnic uh, lens to it at all, although some charter schools did. Uh, so I think you can actually help people with disadvantage without lazily and divisively profiling people into ethnic groups. And that's the difference. You think that in order to help disadvantaged Māori, you have to treat people as an ethnic group. We say we should help disadvantaged people by targeting disadvantage. Do you not have a responsibility as a politician to take some of the heat out of the race-based arguments in, in New Zealand, some of that divisiveness that we've seen in recent times, rather than you know joking about blowing up the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, for example? Well, I think you have a responsibility as a journalist to see that as a joke about government waste rather than trying uh, to turn it into a joke about ethnicity, which it wasn't. That's a misrepresentation of me. Uh, it makes the joke far more divisive than it needs to be, and I think you have a responsibility yourself there. 
Mm. Um, have you yeah. spoken to your candidate, Simon Angelo, after Andrea Vance revealed he, he liked that string of social media posts which were homophobic, misogynistic, conspiratorial? No, I haven't. Is he staying in the party? Yeah, look, frankly, while I find uh, the sentiments in those tweets abominable, um, frankly, if we start saying that because someone liked something, didn't even express it themselves, people can like things for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't believe that, you know, it's a, a sacking offence. It's just really, really disappointing and, as I say, abominable uh, content that was involved there. He liked homophobic slurs directed at Rainbow MPs. He supported a boycott of the warehouse because it was donating to LGBTQ plus communities. He liked a tweet which said teachers who teach about sexual orientation should not be teachers. Another he liked from far-right activist Chantal Baker implying women are promiscuous only because they were abused. Another referring to feminism as a scam, the great reset. There's a whole bunch of anti-trans, anti-abortion stuff as well. Is he a good fit for ACT? Well, as you know, um, and you've known me for a long time, I find all of that sentiment uh, totally abominable. It doesn't fit with my values uh, or with ACT, uh, and I suspect So that why is he still in the party? I suspect that you won't hear anything more like that uh, from Simon while he's associated with ACT. Right, and well, we won't because his tweets are now locked down. He's protected them. So do you know if he's even unliked all of those um, frankly disgusting sentiments that he had shown support for? Well, we agree that they're disgusting sentiments, but if we're, if we're seriously... Yeah, but he's not you know, in my in party, election, David. We've got some pretty big challenges to overcome as a country, and, and, you're, and you're seriously asking me, has a person unliked a tweet? Including I mean, homophobia uh, and misogyny and people who are swept up in conspiracy theories off the back of COVID. Like, these are things that we need to build a bridge with, we've right? Dealt, we've, we've dealt with what we think about those sentiments. He's still in your party, though. Yeah, and we've dealt, with we, we've dealt with what we think about the sentiments. And we're not seriously going to have an argument um, about someone likes I don't understand why he hasn't been cut. You, you got rid of the candidates who compared the vaccine to concentration camps, who said Ardern was throwing people well, into the gulags, blaming the vaccines for people drowning. Why not the guy liking all the homophobic well, stuff? Well, actually, actually we, got, we got rid of one person who made the comments themselves. Uh, nobody else was, as you say, got rid of. That's, that's inaccurate. Is Simon Angelo a homophobe? Well, I, I don't know that. Uh, what is known is that he uh, liked some tweets at some point that I disagree with. If he is a homophobe, would, would you consider nixing him from the party? Look, clearly those values are inconsistent with the values in our party's constitution, my personal values and those that we express, so I would certainly consider it. Right, because he, he liked to post calling Chloe, and I get your argument that he didn't post it himself, but liking it is showing support for something. The post called Chloe Swarbrick a man-hating dyke and ridiculed her mental health history with depression. Yeah, you may have seen on the project on Monday night, I, I said that uh, she's a quality human being, someone I've enjoyed a long relationship with despite considerable philosophical differences. So I don't agree with that sentiment. Um, but, you know, if, if you but want to But you'll allow people in your party to share those kinds of sentiment, to support to, those, to kinds, like of, a, to to like support those yeah. kinds of sentiments. You'll allow that in your party. Uh, well, no, I, I don't. But again, I think your connection between liking a tweet and believing that and having that as a core belief is tenuous, to say the least. There were a string of others, David, which all kind of point to this in the same direction of bigotry.
Yeah, and again, you know what I think about those uh, ideas. Um, I think everyone that knows me knows what I think about those sorts of thoughts. Um, but again, you know, you've got a guy that likes some tweets. Are you going to cut him? Well, I haven't said that, and um, I, I'm not in a position to make a decision like that right now. I've got Shane Jones on after you. He called your bus stinky pinky. Would you like right of reply? <laughs> not really. <laughs> I um I think I I think he's taken that one far enough. All right, thank you very much, David Seymour, for your time um, and persevering through those technical difficulties with us. No, thank you too, and I um, uh, hope you have a good day. Shane Jones up the waz and up the guts joins me now. Tēnā koe matua, kia ora. Uh, kia ora. Who would have known, age 64, standing again for politics and I'd be distinguished by a TikTok ditty. Yeah, TikTok sensation you are. Um, let's talk about this potential of a coalition between National, New Zealand First and the ACT Party. What's your relationship like with David Seymour? I've been very disappointed that David, who I believe is losing enormous amounts of support for his um, gratuitous, quite personalised attacks of our leader, Winston. Look, there's a lot of argy-bargy in politics. I do feel, though, for a relatively young man, when you consider the experience of Winston, it was unnecessary. Winston, to my surprise, has shown more character and dignity probably than I would have and has pointed out that if we're privileged enough to get back into Parliament, then we'll do what's the right thing for the country and not respond in kind to these, what I feel are gratuitous and quite um, venal remarks. It's, it's, it's hard to see how you work together. He called, David Seymour called Winston Peters the least trustworthy person in politics, and he just reiterated that to us in an interview just now as well. It's hard to see how you're all going to get together and run the country. Do you know what's going to make all the difference is the final result on polling day. And know this from me, the trend is currently against David Seymour. He has spent a small fortune on a pink plane, on a bus that I've called the Stinky Pinky, but his votes are disappearing. And a number of them are going back to national, and I suspect a lot of those potential voters are now filling the halls that Winston is gracing throughout New Zealand. You're sounding a little bit like David Seymour, except in the inverse, he was saying basically the same thing about you guys. You have, and you're, you're kind of um, reaffirming a lot of the, the names that you've levelled at him in the past, saying people resent Seymour's nastiness, his vituperativeness, I had to look that one up. You've said David Seymour is possessed of an unseen level of hubris, his attacks against Winston Peters show a level of juvenile development, you've called him irrelevant. You stand by all of that? Yeah, look, I'm a robust politician. If you punch me in the nose and use our party as a punching bag, you can't expect a politician like Matua Shane not to seek utu. But once the electoral contest is over, and it's the people who will decide whether or not New Zealand First belongs back in Parliament, and we're trying our best to encourage the people to back New Zealand First, and I understand that act is fearful, Maybe we are taking their votes. Maybe we're getting votes from elsewhere. But uh, once that contest is over, Toba, 
the real challenge is to do the best by the country. Chris Luxon too has said that his firm preference is a national act coalition, that that would be strong and stable, the inference being that to add New Zealand first into the mix, things would be pretty unstable. I think what Chris Luxon requires is a backbone of experience. And Winston, irrespective of what you may think about his long career, he, is a re- he has a reservoir of experience and he's a peerless statesman. And the country will be much richer if there is that body of experience added to um, the National Party's agenda or indeed to whatever the ACT Party may be required to bring. David Seymour's standing by this um, prospect of a confidence no supply arrangement and he even said as a last, last, last resort ACT might give support to budget legislation on a piece by piece by piece basis. That would be chaos, wouldn't it? You know something I can't understand about what David is saying? On one hand, he agrees there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety in society and for that he blames Jacinda. Then on the other hand, he's saying, oh, but I'll turbocharge it. I'll, I'll, I'll deliver a government that can never ever get anything done unless my priorities or my ego on a given day is stroked. That's why his voting is going down. His voting's not going up. Kiwis do not want that level of uncertainty or quite frankly, that level of ego riddled uh, arbitrariness. It's dangerous though, isn't it? Because if you don't give supply to a government, the government collapses. Constitutional rule number one, if you cannot command the confidence of the House to spend the $140 billion, which is crown expenditure through our budget every year, then the government cannot stand and the government will disappear. So to be putting forward that proposition, that's not, is that not chaotic of the ACT Party? Yeah, the ACT Party is speaking in a very chaotic way. It's trying to hijack democracy. And I think that it's alarming voters at a time where there's already a, enough um, fear. And is New Zealand First ruling out doing anything similar, just offering up a, a confidence no supply type arrangement, particularly one that would, would do uh, legislation, vote budget vote legislation in a piecemeal way? So obviously what Winston and I are doing, and he's doing it uh, in a peerless level, is filling the halls of uh, New Zealand, and I've been filling in for industry, um, kaupapa, on behalf of New Zealand. But neither of us are remotely interested in any arrangement that worsens the level of certainty, uncertainty, or quite frankly uh, feeds into the narrative that Chris Hipkins is running about a um, right-centre government, which it would be chaotic. And David Seymour seems to be just confirming what Chris Chippy Hipkins is rattling on about. So so New Zealand First would not enter a kind of cross-benches arrangement where you only gave supply on a piece-by-piece basis? I will need to... The final shape, character and form, Tober, will depend on how many votes... Um, New Zealand First gathers on October and it's unwise to agree to any shape or form prior to the time when the voters have their say. Which probably answers my next question to an extent, but would you be angling for cabinet positions again for New Zealand First? Well, let's just wait and see what happens. I think that uh, certainly our leader, Winston, has got the type of experience that'll be needed in a, in, in a cabinet of a centre-right character. But look, I, I, I've been booted out of politics um, in 2020, and I also know that voting can be a fickle matter. And whilst the uh, 
polls at the moment show that there's a tailwind enabling us to head in the right direction. It doesn't take much for a gale of adverse weather to pop up in front of you. So I won't start talking about who will be doing what in a cabinet until we've got the votes all counted. Have you and Winston had a corridor at any point about him perhaps wanting that Treasurer role again or the Deputy Prime Minister role again? No, no, no. It's Winston himself who raised the fact that during the Asia flu crisis or bird flu crisis, I can't quite remember what the technical term was, he was the treasurer in New Zealand and he's had that treasury experience. He's included that in a number of his speeches to remind both Kiwis and the audiences that he has the necessary level of uh, track record and how you effectively steer a country through. So he's eyeing that up again. Me. Well, I'm quoting what the, what the leader has said publicly in our meetings. Okay. Um, could New Zealand First get behind National lifting the ban on far, foreign buyers in order to tax them uh, on property to fund its tax cuts? So what's really important is that after the election, we take a deep dive, and perhaps forensics not entirely accurate, but we have a deep dive and establish line by line, are we getting value for money? Is there a better way at this point in the economy cycle we can use that money? Now, the tax uh, regime that uh, the Tories hope to bring in, that will have to go through uh, the grinder of New Zealand first to establish, number one, can we afford it? And are those figures um, tolerable? But look, New Zealand first during the 2017 and 2020 uh, government, we made it easier for foreign capital um, to come into the forestry sector because the forestry sector is already foreign owned up to 76%. So it's wrong to say that we lack the le- level of pragmatism and we don't recognise the importance of foreign capital. But any final sign off on Christopher Luxon's tax plan would depend on a hell of a lot more information than either Winston or I have at the moment. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. We would all love to see that spreadsheet um, in a bit more detail around the modelling of that of that tax plan. But specifically, you and New Zealand First would be open to foreign buyers coming back into the property market. Oh, no, I couldn't. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to repeat what I say. That's a key part of Christopher Luxon's uh, tax plan. Uh, a concern I have about is the inflationary impact of a whole lot of rich foreigners coming in here. But I'd, I wouldn't want to rule anything in or out until such time. And I think uh, as a potential parliamentarian, uh, we're, enti- and we're entitled to that information if you want our support. And I can understand why he's unwilling to give it to Toba and everyone else in the fourth estate, because they probably haven't done the necessary work. You don't think National's done the work on it? No, oh, it's, it's, it's evident to me. It's evident to me that there's some uh, major holes um, in their analysis and they're hoping that they'll still win because there's such a need for change in New Zealand that people will overlook the obvious holes in their analysis. Your young New Zealand First candidate in the youth debate this week raising concerns about quote-unquote transgendering, saying that biological men all over the world are going into women's toilets, scaring us, saying you guys have pe- that, that New Zealand First have people telling them you, that they're assaulted in bathrooms by a biological male. Is he telling the truth? Yeah, the point that young Lee is making is one that's very strong amongst the membership and a host of people that interact with our party. We just saw the evidence of it the other day. There was one group of women's activists, women rights activists, and then there was transgender activists. And the people that have encouraged us to make this an issue going into the election have been people who are speaking about the sovereignty of being a woman. Now, if anyone feels unsafe or is being threatened, please go straight to the police. But I've got to tell you, Toba, I've been astounded at how quickly this transgender agenda, uh, this transgender 
uh, strategy has grown in New Zealand. I personally think it's largely imported from America. And for the time that I have any energy left in the next three years as an MP, I'm not exhausting one iota on an issue from my perspective pertains to less than 1% of New Zealand's population. Yeah, but it's arguably more vulnerable percentage of New Zealand's population. Or are you talking about the people that are criticising transgender people? Or are you talking about... No, no, I, I think those that claim that they're under attack within the transgender community... I'm not going to over-exaggerate the size of that problem. I personally think that there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of froth, and there's a lot of colour around that particular issue. But look, reality is going to set in. They're a tiny group of New Zealanders, and if they are suffering criminal activity... I've got people in Northland who are suffering criminal activity from the gangs every day. Go and see the cops. So you think talking about toilets is a waste of time? No, I think the issue of discussing toilets is a proxy for... Women are entitled to privacy. This is what women are telling New Zealand first. Trans people are they're entitled to rights as well. Uh, not at the expense of women. But tra- who are these men, these biological men that are running rampant around women's bathrooms? I mean, I, I'm a woman. I've used public toilets before, never had this issue. And suddenly you've got this what slew of people coming to you saying this is an issue. Yeah, well, look, I can only refer to the fact that a host of people have raised this as an issue. They're entitled to do so. We're a party that is not afraid to take on awkward issues. And I accept a lot in the media, indeed. A host of Kiwis find it quite um, discombi- Dan- dangerous. Dis- well, I don't, I don't know if they find it dangerous. They find it an awkward discussion. Tran- and probably trans people four times more likely than cisgender people to be victims of violent crime. Trans and non-binary teenagers face a higher risk of sexual assault in schools that prevent them using from bathrooms that are consistent with their gender identity. So some of this rhetoric do not acknowledge that it can be inflammatory and it can be dangerous for those those already vulnerable people. If you're feeling vulnerable and criminals are bugging you, go to the cops. Don't turn it into an issue of a political character and expect me to do anything about it other than send you to the cops. I think sometimes these are kids that we're talking about, but I think um, we've both established our firm views on either side of this. Um, I asked David Seymour about some of his more dubious candidates. I want to ask you about some of yours. Charlie Mitchell did some great reporting um, from stuff. Uh, Kirsten Murphitt, she's number 11 on your list. She had posts suggesting that those who took death shots, presumably the vaccine, are technically no longer human and other post suggested visiting a cemetery to verify whether dead vaxxers emit Bluetooth signals. She shared a video alleging the COVID-19 vaccines contained nanotechnology connecting the vaccinated to a centralised 5G smart grid, turning them into biological robots branded with a scannable product code. Mm -hmm. She a good fit for New Zealand First? Look, no no politician in New Zealand has (laughs) an uncluttered Uh, record of their uh, former deliveries. I I myself am living proof of that. You have never gone out there and said that death shots mean that people are technically no longer human and that you're connecting to some kind of 5G grid. Hmm. So information is imperfect and there are a whole host of people in New Zealand who rightfully or wrongfully feel there's been a massive overreach by officialdom and the bureaucracy. They felt no one treated them seriously, possibly feel that's still the case given the size of the freedom vote. So New Zealand, when we announced first, when we announced that there's going to be a deep invasive dive through um, uh, an internationally uh, internationally based uh, review, including not just people from New Zealand, 
then we're really answering the concerns and the anxieties. Now, how they articulate them with colourful language and various uh, various hyperbole—that just that's just politics. It's, uh, I, she also said Dame Jacinda Ardern is the most evil thing. And when Ardern visited Waitangi in 2022, she cryptically posted, "Cindy is at Waitangi. You know what to do." <laughs> she sounds like some of the crazy Maori sovereignty activists up there. I really wouldn't catastrophize half a dozen statements that are now all in the past. You don't think that this kind of thing, I mean, we've seen like the country has been so divided and um, conspiracy theories and mis and disinformation have become so rife. You don't think that people like this are dangerous? You're platforming them. We mustn't leave the, uh, we mustn't leave people where they feel they have to live in rabbit holes. The greatest Distant, disinfectant is political sunlight. And if it comes to pass that the people that are a part of our movement then have to face the music and account in a broader public way for what they're saying, that's how democracy works. Um, let's leave it there. Just on a happy note, though, I hear you have one more music video coming. I have to acknowledge my wife, Dorothy, the uh, former beauty queen, who convinced Matua Shane Jones, uh, despite my uh, very average singing ability, although my kids uh, are great singers, there is one more contribution, and sorry I can't reveal it, it'll arrive at a time where it might have a positive impact on the Northland voting attitudes. Okay, give us a little bit of a clue, is there a theme to the video, can you share anything? Yes, well, they're, 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 uh, it's not a sea shanty, and it'll appeal to those people who enjoy Enjoy um, street music, if I can put it to you like that. Oh, he's rapping. Always we'll oh, rapping. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Matua Shane Jones, kia ora. Kia ora. I mean, it is the nature of politics and campaigns and MMP, isn't it? Strong, vociferous proponents of party policy and ideology thrashing it out for supremacy. In theory, they mix it up, negotiate, find commonality and form governments that technically replicate and represent the makeup and views of the rest of us. And there is so much that ACT and New Zealand First do have in common, including a roll call of crackpot conspiratorial candidates. Yet, it's near impossible to see them forming a cohesive, constructive, credible coalition together. The two biggest public polls aligned this week to deliver National and Act an agonising one-seat shortfall, forcing New Zealand First into the mix. At this rate, the only way Christopher Luxon will be Prime Minister is if he picks up the phone to Winston Peters, something Luxon has said he does not want to do. When asked in the News Hub debate this week if Peters was good or bad for New Zealand, Luxon ducked, said he didn't know the guy. Well, that's all about to change in a very big way. Never mind the struggle to see how these parties will govern together, imagine for a moment the negotiations. In 1996, Peter's first stint as kingmaker, the coalition negotiations took eight long weeks, with National and Jim Bolger eventually victorious, until of course the coalition fell apart two years later. In 2005, it was down to 30 days of tense negotiations before a confidence and supply agreement was announced, Labour and Helen Clark the winners that time, until of course Peters stood down as Minister just before the 2008 election. In 2017, his third stint as power broker, Peters continued to chip down his PB to 26 days of negotiations. Labour again the winner, this time with Jacinda Ardern and the Greens in confidence and supply. And it was it was mostly hunky-dory until Peters flipped his lid, booted from Parliament in 
2020 by voters. He took it out on Labour and ruled out working with them this time round. And here we are. Nowhere but national for Peters to go for power and nowhere on current polling for national and ACT to go but into the arms of Winston Peters. Shane Jones, ever the self-declared statesman, did make the point after pledging Utu for those like Seymour who punch him in the nose and use his party as a punching bag. He did make the point that once the contest is over, the real challenge is to do the best by the country. And he's right, of course, and politicians are big enough and ugly enough to suck it up and get it done. But Seymour's right to an extent too. Peters does have a dubious track record. The upshot is... There are just some parties who can't set their differences aside. Oil and water parties. National won't work with this iteration of Te Pāti Māori and vice versa, nor the Greens and vice versa. Labour won't work with ACT and vice versa, nor New Zealand First this time round and vice versa. The big question now, with enormous implications for all of us, is do New Zealand First and ACT fit the bill? All signs point to yes, though perhaps less oil and water, more petrol meets fire. That's my take. I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Email me tova at stuff.co.nz. We'll get to some of your feedback a little later. Time now for Snakes and Leaders with our magnificent National Affairs Editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times, Andrea Vance. Vancey, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I don't feel magnificent. This election is like, I don't think it's good for my mental health. It's really bringing out my nihilistic tendencies. I'm getting grumpier <laughs> and grumpier by the day, but anyway, oh my never goodness. mind. Your reporting is very good for my mental health. Every day just brings me joy, your reporting and your columns. So um, I don't oh, know if that's you. a quid pro quo for you. <laughs> um, so many winners and so many losers this week. Uh, who did you whittle it down to with your winner first up? Oh, I don't know. Christ, it was a week. Um, so I was going to say Winston Peters because I think like the money is flowing into Winston. He's nice central stage in the campaign mainly because I think we were all just a bit bored and he's some entertainment. But you, I just can't get away from Chris Hipkins. The man was on fire. He really brought the fireworks to that debate. He was full of heart, you know? Like I felt like you really got to see who Chris Hipkins was and what he stood for and what he cares about. So I'm going to go Chris Hipkins this week. Yeah, totally back you on that. It was night and day, that, that first television debate. Chris Hipkins was a completely new man, and he, he knew what he had to do after that first debate. He stepped up and he delivered. Um, we reported as well that he actually got a phone call from Helen Clark off the back. She was seriously unimpressed, and she gave him a massive rack up and told him <laughs> to fight it out. Fight like your life depends on it. And so oh. he did. No, we know. No, we know what happened. He got the Helen Clark treatment. Imagine. Um, who was your loser this week? So I'm going to say Christopher Lokes and this week because I just, I get why he said what he said about Winston Peters, that he would have to work with him if he had to. It was an insurance policy, but it thrust Winston Peters into the spotlight. And mm. he's now this kind of black hole of the election campaign sucking <laughs> everything in. And I just think that he elevated Winston Peters to a level of importance that he didn't quite have and I always think of Winston Peters as like the candy man you know you say his name three times and he will appear <laughs> and create mayhem so yeah I'm going to give it to Christopher Luxon because I think that was a strategic error. Oh that's brilliant and so true on every front. Um, have we got any honourable dishonourable mentions this week? Yeah I have to I mean you and I know and love Paddy but Paddy who knew 
that Paddy Gower was the leader that we needed in this election. <laughs> I thought he was absolutely fantastic. And you know what? I thought that debate was really a palate cleanser for us all because I've been feeling this week that the election campaign has just got a bit gross, a bit egg with mm. the, the transphobia of the ARC candidate that I reported on this week mm. and the racism that we've seen all the way through. And I thought that Paddy, what he managed to do was really hone it back to what's important and what we should be focused on and the two men that we really should be focused on. So, you know, round of applause to Paddy. He was phenomenal. We had it all, didn't we? We had fireworks. There were meaty issues that were discussed. And he did that unique thing that he did last election as well. And that only can be done in a debate where you get the leaders to commit to an almighty policy platform <laughs> on the hoof. Um, and the public is the winner from that, I think, on so many of those fronts. Paddy for Prime Minister, for God's sake. <laughs> I don't know if Paddy would want that. I don't know. I don't know if the country's ready. Andrea. That's what we need, Tova. He's the man we need to lead us. You've got campaign fever. You've got to go. <laughs> Andrea Vance <laughs> out. Thank you so much for your time. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Tova. See ya. Before we get to Luke, have I got a bit of news for you. We were contacted by Better Taxes for a Better Future. They're an advocacy group supported by people like Amnesty International, the Council of Trade Unions, Salvation Army, the New Zealand Nurses Organisation, Child Poverty Action Group. It's a long list. And, and they want changes to the tax system. They've shared the results of a survey which they say shows an overwhelming majority of Kiwis, 78% of those surveyed, want an excess profits tax on large businesses, so like a windfall tax on banks and supermarkets and the like. The campaign says that 89% of Green voters and 83% of Labour voters support the tax and perhaps more surprisingly, 74% of national voters want a windfall tax. They shared the results of another question from the survey as well. Should all income be taxed in the same way? Essentially what they're getting at is whether Aotearoa wants a capital gains tax. The survey says 62% agreed. 62% want a capital gains tax, including 59% of national supporters and half of ACT supporters. And here is a widow from Better Taxes for a Better Future to the political parties. So our challenge for politicians is threefold. One, stop underestimating the people of New Zealand when it comes to tax reform and stop scaremongering about tax. Two, look at implementing an excess profit tax, which has overwhelming support and is one tax that no one has categorically ruled out during this election campaign. Three, engage meaningfully with the people of New Zealand about a capital gains tax. When people understand that it is about taxing all come equitably, they will support it. And you can read more, including about the survey methodology and the 1,100-plus voters they spoke to on stuff.co.nz. Now it is time for the Beehive Buzz. Let's bring in our brilliant political editor, Luke Malpass, with what we should be looking out for this week. Kia ora, Luke. How are you going? I'm good, Tober. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm a little bit nervous about the protesters who are knocking about the door of the, the parliament where, where you are. How's that shaking down? Oh, it's like uh, it's like Fort Knox. All the roads are closed around parliament. Cops everywhere. A major event in the political calendar coming up as well. Voting is opening. We get to get cracking. That's right. Advanced voting opens on Monday. Last election, 68% of the population voted early. So... There have been some predictions around it could be up to 80% this year. Although I talked to the um, some people at the Electoral Commission and they said, well, you know, we'll see how it goes because obviously it was the middle of COVID last time, so maybe more people were, were keen to sort of go and when there were fewer people. So it'll be very interesting to see in any case. 
And it has been a, a week dominated by the News Hub debate in a lot of ways. Finally, we saw Chris and Chris actually going at it. Um, it was a debate the likes of which the press and stuff and you are going to be hosting next week. That's right. So uh, next Tuesday, uh, there's the press leaders debate. This has been a fiction of the political calendar since 2011. Uh, it's going to be almost probably 2,000 people there, the Christchurch Town Ooh. Hall. It's raucous, it's rowdy, you're going to be there, yes. Toba, I'm going to be Ooh. there. Um, it's a really good chance to put the leaders through their paces in a, in a very old-fashioned atmosphere. I mean, for both of the Chris's, this is, the press debate is something that the politicians basically don't get in the modern age, which is the two of you duking it out in front of a big crowd of people who are going to cheer, boo, heckle. And in the olden days, this is how you won votes. Nowadays, you've got to calibrate it so that what you're saying works in the room and works on TV, works on the live stream, which will be live streamed on stuff as well. So it'll be you, me, press editor Carmela Heyman, and um, I just can't wait. What about you? Oh, yeah, I'm super psyched. I'm, I'm pretty nervous as well. I'm really optimistic and hopeful that we see the kinds of Chris's that we saw in the in the News Hub leaders debate. Uh, I thought it was a real contest of ideas uh, and I want more of that because that's what helps I think voters really lay out the differences between those two leaders. I think now we're getting to a, the pointy end of the campaign we're really starting to see some of those differences which will help voters make up their mind on, on October the 14th. So we get a bit more of a sense of actually kind of who these two are because ultimately they're both pretty boring suburban dads who have done really well you know. <laughs> Hard agree. Thank you so much, um, Luke. I really appreciate your time always. We'll talk to you again next week. I'll see you at the debate. See you there. I'm always interested to hear from you too. Email tova at stuff.co.nz. Producer Chris is joining me now. Kia ora. Kia ora. How are you? make it sound like I've just entered the room. I know, you've been oh, here this. the whole time. <laughs> I've just turned my microphone on. A lot of mail in the bag this week. Yeah, we had a huge response to last week's show, uh, which was predominantly about the life and suspected suicide of 16-year-old Maddie Hall. So many people got in touch to share their own often highly painful experiences with the public mental health system. We heard from one mother who says that being a nurse helps her to an extent navigate the system to seek the best outcomes for her child. She says, I so feel for the many parents who don't have these skills and knowledge, mm. but still so want to help their child that they love unconditionally. Mm. And she wanted to highlight two things that Maddie's parents, Leanne and Gareth, who you spoke to last week, talked about. Her first point, ensuring that young people in the system have one key person they deal with throughout their treatment. She wrote... These children get tired of telling their story to multiple practitioners from the acute public sector and then again in the private sector if parents can afford this. Once they click with a counsellor, they need to stay with that person because once discharged from the acute sector, they are not given any more support. And her second takeaway that including family, whānau in the care plan is, quote, absolutely paramount. Many parents, she writes, have no idea what is happening and need guidance. These children need to know that they are loved and that life is worth living. Many remain alive only because their family loves them and is there for them 24-7. Families need support. Thank you so much for getting in touch and could not agree more. The mental health inquiry has backed up both of those points as well. We saw that yeah. in Maddie's case, the fact that when she finally had a private psychiatrist, one person that she could identify with, that there was real progress made. Yeah. But sadly for Maddie's parents, 
pointed out that it, it was it was too late for her. So these are things, and then and then no brainers, aren't they? These are not you know, kind of reinventing the wheel, rocket science stuff. This is, of course, you should have the family involved. Of course, a child with complex mental health needs should have a single point of contact and someone that they trust. Absolutely. Uh, Another mother got in touch with us as well to say that her 23-year-old daughter was in the system for six years. She wrote, Our mental health system was, is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I did not take no for an answer. She rung and advocated to get the help that my daughter needed, although it also took numerous suicide attempts and devastating self-harm episodes. It was an extremely stressful few years. I have many stories that mirror Maddie's family. At one point I had the choice of my 17-year-old daughter being locked in a police cell or I was to take her home and keep a 24-7 vigil to ensure her safety. The only reason my daughter is still alive today is luck. Luck, pure and simple. And it really saddens me that it seems things aren't much different. My daughter is living her life. She's doing well. She's succeeding. But mental health, unlike a broken leg, is ongoing. It's an illness that needs lifelong management. Uh, Unfortunately, even after all the public awareness, government promises, it is still on the back burner. Yeah. And another mother got in touch to say that Leanne and Gareth Hall's story had many similarities to What she's going through with her 17-year-old, she writes, child mental health services are too busy and there is virtually no help available. I have experienced both Northland and Auckland. The incompetence is staggering and hard to navigate and confront when your heart is on the floor and you can't breathe. I'm sure there will be many who resonate with Maddie's sad Mm. story. Bless them all and bless Maddie and her parents. Thank you all so much for for getting in touch and sharing your experiences as well. I know that a lot of you got in touch directly too with Leanne and Gareth Hall and some of those stories and that support that you offered meant, meant a lot to them. We should also point out, shouldn't we, Chris, that last week for our mental health episode, we'd wanted to talk to Nationals mental health spokesperson, Matt Ducey. Matt and he refused because the Nats hadn't yet put out their mental health policy. TikTok. Yeah, and the election's getting ever closer. No sign of it. Where's the mental health policy, guys? Come on. Come on. This is important. It hasn't been talked about enough on this campaign, uh, in our opinion. Just a reminder of our email to tova at stuff.co.nz if you want to send us any feedback or if you've got any questions as well, we'll endeavour to answer them. Yeah, we love hearing from you. The pod's going really well and it's fantastic uh, to have such an engaged audience. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There is a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically and keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts. I think we've got a couple of those coming this week. Thank you always to audio editor, wizard extraordinaire, Connor Scott and our magnificent executive producer, Chris Reed. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. A week is a long time in politics, folks. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.